beautiful songs all the time. It'd be great. Can you imagine that? Perfect harmony. I don't know about you guys, but I don't have a good singing voice. My daughter tells me I'm paid to speak, not paid to sing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Yes, good encouragement there. Let's pray, shall we? We sing hallelujah to you, Lord. We say hallelujah to you as well. You are holy, holy, holy. You are the Lord God. You are over all. There's nothing escapes your notice. And you are, there's nothing that you are not holy over. Not hold, there's nothing that you are not in charge over. You are sovereign. Lord, you live in the past. You live in the present. You live in the future. This whole thing is yours. Yes, Lord, we thank you for allowing us to come into your presence. We thank you for allowing us to get understanding from your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would indeed give us understanding today. Lord, we're going to be delving into some things that uh, will remind us that you are in charge. You are in, you are in control, even to the writing of your word, your precious holy word. So, Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom, give us understanding. Allow us, Lord, to apply this to our lives that we may walk out of here better equipped to worship, to serve, and to be the witness that you called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we dive into the message today, I've got two things I want to share. And the first thing is, thank you. Isn't that great to hear? Thank you. It's good stuff. It's no secret that in the approach that I took during our Pentecost miniseries, it wasn't very smooth sailing, and some of you were, may have been a little confused about things. And I've said since day one as your pastor that if you think I'm going off the rails, you need to come and talk to me. You did. <laughs> Great. And you know, over the course of the last several weeks, several chats have taken place. And on at least one occasion, we broke out the Bibles, we had vigorous discussion. Hard questions were posed to me. And in a couple of points, words were said to the effect, I don't agree with you. And guess what? That's okay. See, there's a lot of things that Christians can debate about and come to different conclusions about. And the things I share with you during the Pentecost miniseries are things of what I call intramurals, things in-house, things between brothers and sisters. Things that we, as brothers and sisters, can talk about. We can sometimes vigorously debate and disagree even over these things and still remain in the family. But what we cannot disagree over are things like who Jesus is, the way of salvation, the existence of the Trinity, the inspiration of the Scriptures. And so I just want to reiterate to you my commitment to the Word of God and my conviction about the Word of God. And when I say conviction, what I mean by that is I'm willing to give my life for the Word of God. And what I mean by that is if someone were to come to me and say, deny that the Bible is the inspired Word of God or breathe your last, I would say that I'm going to breathe my last. I'm willing to give my life for the Scripture and the God that the Scripture talks about. Now, the Scripture is the absolute authoritative word of the living God. 66 writings make up God's inspired list of writings. 
39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. Now, there are many other books that we can and we should study to give us understanding so that we may apply and that I may apply God's Word to my, to my life. I may understand it right, and I may apply it to my life aright. Like, for example, I mentioned to you First Enoch. You know, it's good and right that we read those things, that we even study those things. But those books do not carry the authority of the Word of God. No other collection of writings has the authority of God than the 66 books that we have that we call our Bible. We dare not add to or take away from this list. Paul describes God's Word as breathed out by Him. Every word in Scripture carries with it divine authority and divine power. I just want to let you know where I'm coming from. And second, in my attempt to be cute, and I believe I'm just referring myself cute in reference to me, but in relation to our revealing the next series, I'm afraid that I may have confused you as well. And so like last week when I said that our next series was the gospel according to Moses, I sort of heard through the grapevine that some of you heard it a little differently. And, and yes, we are going to study the gospel according to Moses. But what I mean by that is that's what the series is called. That's the title of the series. And so, again, going to set the record straight. We're going to go through a Bible book when we talk about the gospel according to Moses. And the Bible book that we're going to talk about is and go through is Deuteronomy. All right? Deuteronomy is what we're going to talk about. And the series title is called The Gospel According to Moses. So we're not going to go anything weird, all right? No extra biblical stuff we're talking about. We're talking about Deuteronomy. And I don't know when the last time you ever read Deuteronomy was, but it is an amazing book. It really, really is. And by the way, it's one of Jesus' favorite books. He quoted that quite often, especially during his temptations. And he got victory over the enemy according to that. Now, indeed, we're going to be talking about and going through the book of Deuteronomy. And I promise you that as you ask the Lord to prepare your heart and ask the Lord to help me to understand it and to, and to give it to you, that it will definitely be worth your while to come and to join us as I lead you through these amazing last words of Moses. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to start that. You good with that? All right. I see a lot of head nods. Excellent. Good. And so with that said, let's begin the message today, call it the epilogue of the Corinthian correspondence. It contains 65 chapters. It's a little bit longer than 1 Corinthians, and the author quotes 85 passages from the Scripture directly, 13 Old Testament books and 8 New Testament books to include in its entirety Isaiah chapter 53. You might be thinking, what's up with all these numbers? What's up with all this strange document that we may be talking about here? Well, we're definitely going to be talking about a document you may have never heard before. But let me answer that question, though, with a question. You remember what I asked you last week in preparing us for what we're going to talk about this week? You guys didn't hear. Okay, okay, I get it. Yeah. What happened with the Corinthians? You know, when we read Scripture, it's like, you know, I'm going to go from one end to the other Scripture, and it's like, okay, that's good. What's in it for me? But what about, what about the churches, what the Scripture writer wrote to? You know, what happened to them? 
Well, we're going to talk about that today. Do you ever wonder if the Corinthians actually went on with the Lord? You think about all the things that, they, that Paul wrestled with them, over them, all their sins, and, you know, did they go on with the Lord? Well, some of the answers to whether the Corinthians actually did go on with the Lord is contained in a letter written about 95 A.D., about the time that John wrote Revelation. This letter we're going to talk about today is, was considered extremely valuable to the Christians of that day, so valuable that many churches would actually read it straight through when they gathered together for corporate worship. Admittedly, this letter that we're going to talk about today is not part of the 66 books of the Bible, but there's so much Scripture in it, it ought to be. Now, one thing we need to remember, though, when we talk about how things were done in the first century, and especially what happened with the body of Christ and how they met together for worship, a little bit different than what we do in our day. For example, no church in the first century had a complete Bible. You knew that, right? No church had that. The very most that any church had in their, in their coming together, in their assembly, was the Old Testament, perhaps, and maybe a couple of letters from the New. And no one had their own personal copy of God's Word. Now, we take it for granted. Everybody's got a copy of God's Word. How many have got multiple copies and multiple different versions? Not then, not back then. And so when it came to the New Testament, of course, it was still being written all the way up to around 95 A.D. And there were so few copies of the Gospels and the letters all floating around that when a church actually received a writing that would eventually become part of the New Testament, part of, of the Bible, you know, they would come together, they would read it in its entirety, and then when they were done with it, it would be hand-carried to another church so that they could experience it as well. And so for the Christians who met together in their respective assemblies on the Lord's days, no one ever said this. The pastor never said, now open your Bible to 2 Corinthians. Questions like, you know, you're fellowshipping with your brother or your sister. So what did you get out of your Bible reading this, this week? You know, that wasn't asked because no one had their own copy. And so the way of life for the Christians back in the day was a bit different than the way that we live our lives as Christians. You know, we take a lot of things for granted, but not back then. What would happen if all of a sudden we had somebody who came from the first century here, maybe they engaged in a little time travel. But what, happened if, what would happen if somebody from the first century were to come here to Grace United and we were to hand them a copy of God's Word in their language? What would that be like for them? Can you imagine? Whoa, incredible. We take it for granted. But the letter that we're going to be talking about today was written by a pastor in the church in Rome and was written to the church in Corinth. Most likely, this guy was named Clement. Clement. Now, we first hear about Clement in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul calls him a fellow worker in the gospel. Now, Paul wrote Philippians about 62 A.D., a couple of years before he was actually promoted to heaven. Now, fast forward about 30 years from that time to about 95 A.D. The leadership in the church in Corinth wrote to the church in Rome, asking their advice over some issues, specifically one issue, what to do 
about a fresh outbreak of divisions in the church in Corinth. Does that sound familiar to you? <laughs> that issue had been, had been plaguing them practically since day one, since the first day that Paul gathered some believers together, some people together, hey, you're now Christians. Divisions began to happen even then. And so Clement, now one of the pastors in Rome, sat down to write a letter to the Corinthians to address this issue. And divine wisdom, as in Holy Scripture, poured out from Clement's heart through his pen onto the parchment. And in the space of a little bit longer than 1 Corinthians, Pastor Clement quoted 89 passages of Scripture to include quotes from eight New Testament writings. Clement treated these New Testament writings as God's Word on the same level as the Old Testament as well. He called them in this letter that he wrote to them, he called the, the Scripture the utterances of the Holy Spirit. He believed the inspiration of the Scripture. And the point is that Clement knew the Word, and he skillfully wove God's authority into the letter that he wrote to the Corinthians in addressing their issue. And so today's message is going to be sort of a good news, bad news, good news sort of thing. And last week we finished 2 Corinthians, as we know, we finished the text of it. 2 Corinthians 13 opened up with this. Paul's plans, he said. Chapter 13, verse 1, he says, this is now the third time I'm coming to you. He was getting ready to pay the Corinthians a third visit. And he had two reasons for stopping by. First one, he was going to collect the money that they had set aside, that they had pledged, that they as Gentile Christians were going to help the Jewish Christians in some famine relief. The prices were going sky high, no food, and they wanted to minister to these Jewish Christian brethren in Judea. And second, Paul was going to deal with the unrepentant in the church. Now, this was not what he wanted to do, as we saw last week, but he was willing and ready to do it if he, if he had to. So hear Paul's words again in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. He said, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I might have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. And what did Paul say about those who practice these kinds of things? You know, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. There were some that were attached to the church that were doing these kinds of things. So now we can assume that Paul paid them visit number three. But how did they respond to the visit? Inquiring minds want to know. And this is where the good news comes in as penned through Pastor Clement. And so what I'm about to share with you is kind of lengthy, but remember all the problems that the Corinthians had. Remember all the sins that they were trying to overcome and what Paul was calling them out about. And all the consternation they you know, gave Paul over the, over the months, over the years that he had associated himself with. And so with all that in mind, I think it's good that we would hear some good stuff and savor the fruit of Paul's ministry. And so after Clement gives the Corinthians a standard greeting, he says this to them. Who did not admire the sobriety and moderation of your godliness in Christ? Good start, isn't it? It gets better. Who did not proclaim the magnificence 
of your habitual hospitality. And who did not rejoice over your perfect and well-grounded knowledge? For you did all things without respect of persons and walked in the commandments of God, being obedient to those who had the rule over you and giving all fitting honor to the presbyters or pastors among you. You urged young men to be of a sober and serious mind. You instructed your wives to do all things with a blameless, becoming, and pure conscience, loving their husbands as in duty bound. And you taught them that, living in the rule of obedience, they should manage their household affairs properly and be in every respect marked by discretion. Moreover, you were all distinguished by humility, interesting, and were not in any way puffed up with pride, but yielded obedience rather than extorted it, and were more willing to give than to receive. Content with the provision which God had made for you, and carefully attending to His words, you took His teaching to heart, and Christ's sufferings were before your eyes. Thus a profound and abundant peace was given to all of you, and you had an insatiable desire for doing good, while a full outpouring of the Holy Spirit was upon all of you. Full of holy designs, you stretch forth your hands in prayer with true earnestness of mind and a godly confidence to God Almighty, begging Him to be merciful to you if you have been guilty of any involuntary transgression. Day and night, you were anxious for the whole brotherhood that the number of God's elect might be saved with mercy and a good conscience. You were sincere and uncorrupted, and you hardly noticed when someone wronged you. Every kind of faction and schism was abominable in your sight. Whoa! You mourned over the transgressions of your neighbors. You deemed their shortcomings as though they were your own. You never grudged any act of kindness, being ready to, to do every good work. Adorned by a thoroughly virtuous and religious life, you did all these things in the fear of God. The commandments and ordinances of the Lord were written upon your hearts. Amazing stuff, isn't it? Amazing commendation. Now you tell me, do you think Paul's ministry finally bore fruit with his third visit? Do you think that his visit had an effect on them? So do I. Divisions vanished. Sin was repented of. Unity became their hallmark. At last, the Corinthians show by the way that they lived, not merely by what they claimed, that they were true disciples of Jesus. And what an amazing extended commendation to these same people who at times past seemed like they were living in any, any other way but godly. They turned the corner, and it seemed as though everything came together. And I wish I would have been there. What about you? Just seeing how, how masterfully the Lord would use Paul to help them to turn that corner and to, and to repent and to be the kinds of people that God wanted them to be. And what I find in the good news part of the story here in the Corinthians change, it was evident and it was public. Everybody knew what happened to them and everybody knew how they began to live their lives. The Roman church leadership actually told the Corinthians what they had heard. He said, who did not find your faith to be as fruitful of virtue as it was firmly established? Who did not rejoice over your perfect and well-grounded knowledge? That's just a couple of examples as we had just heard. Everybody knew the testimony 
of the Corinthians. And it was an amazing thing indeed. But over time, weeds began to grow. Or should I say, began to regrow. For these weeds were what plagued the Corinthians from the start. Now let's take a brief look at the bad news of the Corinthian church. Again, I will quote parts and pieces of the letter that Pastor Clement wrote to them. So the worthless rose up against the honored, those of no reputation against those who were renowned, the foolish against the wise, the young against those advanced in years. For this reason, righteousness and peace are now far departed from you, inasmuch as everyone abandons the fear of God and has become blind in his faith and neither walks in the ordinances of his appointment nor acts as a part, of be, uh, part becoming a Christian, but walks after his own wicked lusts, resuming the practice of an unrighteous and ungodly envy by which death itself entered into the world. Clement continues, Our apostles also knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that there would be strife on account of the office of the episcopate or those in leadership. We are of the opinion, Clement says, that those appointed with the consent of the whole church and who have blamelessly served the flock of Christ in a humble and peaceful spirit and have for a long time possessed the good opinion of all cannot be justly dismissed from the ministry. In other words, you can't just get rid of these guys just because you want to. These guys are proven. But we see that you have removed some men of excellent behavior from the ministry, which they fulfill blamelessly and with honor. So what was going on here? Simply put, some faithful leaders were, in our vernacular, fired by the people in the pew. There were a couple of young, influential, wicked men who led the way on this. And of course, this caused a lot of pain and division. Pastor Clement did not dive into the details of the reasons why all this happened. But by what he could surmise, the leaders were faithful and their firing was greatly unwarranted. And so what were these weeds? In reality, the one weed that was growing in the church in Corinth, divisions. Again, sound familiar? This was the very first problem that Paul addressed in the very first chapter of the Corinthian correspondence. Remember what he said in chapter 12, verse, or chapter 1, 11, and 12. He says, For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. There were factions in the church. The threat of the people to follow their favorite personalities was a weed that the enemy planted deeply into the soil of the church. But after Paul visited the third time, it looked like the weed was taken care of because unity was the name of the game then for quite a while. But tragically, the weed was not taken care of. It was simply cut down. The root was still there. The dandelion root and the otherwise pristine green grass that was the church in Corinth was not dug up. It looked like things were fine, but it grew back, and it grew back with a vengeance. Listen to another part of the letter of Pastor Clement, wondering how, describing how things 
went from bad to worse. Take up the epistle, he says, of the blessed apostle Paul. What is he referring to? First and second Corinthians. What did he write to you at the time when the gospel first began to be preached? Truly under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote to you concerning himself and Cephas and Apollo and Apollos, because even then parties had been formed among you. It is disgraceful, beloved, yea, highly disgraceful and unworthy of your Christian profession that such a thing should be heard of as that the most steadfast and ancient church of the Corinthians should, on account of one or two persons, engage in sedition against its leaders. And this rumor or this account has reached not only us, but also those who are unconnected with us, so that the name of the Lord is blasphemed, while danger is also brought upon yourselves. Clement saw this as just a horrendous thing now. This weed of division in the church grew quickly. Disorder in the assembly soon followed, and wickedness began to uh, multiply again. And the good testimony that the Corinthians enjoyed at one time began to turn into a horrendous one. This was the issue that Pastor Clement dealt with. And he took about 60 chapters of his 65 to deal with this issue. And how he did it, he rebuked them with one biblical example after another. He wrote about envy and recounted the stories of Cain and Abel and about Moses when he killed the Egyptian and about Saul's persecution of David and many others. Clement also called all the Corinthians to repentance using many biblical examples as well. Humility was something that was huge with Clement. And he quoted Isaiah 53 with the Lord Jesus as their prime example of humility. Clement pressed home that in that light of their certain resurrection and that they're going to give an account to the Lord on that day, that they need to get ready. They need to do the things that please God and flee from the things that God hates. Clement also spilled ink, reminding the Corinthians that God made them right with him on account of his grace. And they were to serve him out of gratitude for the grace that they had received, that they had been got made right, justified with God through faith. And so what can we say about the bad news of the Corinthians, this part of the story? One weed running unchecked can cause massive devastation in the church. It's not enough to, as it were, cut the grass and merely make things look good. And we know this, right? We can see it out here every so often. If they don't come, we can see the weeds popping up. And then when they cut the grass, it looks really nice. But guess what's going to happen to the weeds? It's going to pop back up, right? It takes much more than just that. We must get rid of the weeds, even if the grass doesn't look all that good. And did you catch who else was watching Division 2.0 with the Corinthians. Clement described it this way, and this rumor, this account has reached uh, not only to us, but also to those who are unconnected with us so that the name of the Lord is blasphemed. Who else was watching? The pagans, the non-Christians were looking at the division once again and the wickedness that once again that the church of Corinth was now espousing. Clement called the division something that was blasphemed in the name of the Lord. 
How sobering is that? But in the midst of all that Clement wrote in his rebuke, there is much hope and compassion here. Proverbs 27, 6 tells us that faithful, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And Clement was being the faithful friend to point out to them their errors. He was calling them to repent, and he was telling them that the sins of envy and being divisive were a thing they needed to take care of. They, they need to no longer refuse to submit to the Lord's authority. And Clement also warned them, resurrection day is coming. And with that means, judgment day is coming as well. And Paul described that judgment day this way. Remember, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, he says, we must all appear, all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may receive what is due in the body for what we have done, whether good or evil. Christians, that day's coming, and we're going to be judged. So the good of the story, Paul's ministry was fruitful after all. They repented for a time. The bad, the weed of division reared its ugly head, causing division between brother and sister, giving them cause to return to the wicked ways they walked away from, or at least many of them. And so here we are again. The Corinthians did not do well. And then Paul visited three times. And then the Corinthians did well. And then, after a while, the Corinthians did not do well. And then Clement wrote them. Did the Corinthians get back on track because Pastor Clement wrote to them? What do you think? The very unsatisfying answer is, we don't know. We don't know if they really, really got back on track. But we will know when we get to the other side, won't we? If we meet some Corinthian Christians, then we will conclude that, yes, indeed, they did get back on track, at least some of them. But there is another part of the story that is a good part of the story. We had bad, or we had good, bad, and now good. Good story is what I said uh, a couple of times here. How many passages of Scripture did Clement quote? And he quoted with accuracy. Now, it's widely known that this letter, 1 Clement, is one of the earliest letters written that wasn't part of the canon of Scripture. And so the reasons that Clement writing this letter served to actually help us have the Scriptures that we have today. He actually quoted from about one-third of all the books that we have in the Bible. One-third, just that one letter. And again, Clement referred to the Scriptures as the utterances of the Holy Spirit. He knew the authority of God's Word. And he used it. Now, we had a, a great church history lesson, didn't we? I, that was good. That was good. I, I was fascinated going through this. But there's something we can take away from here that we can apply to our lives. We just don't want this to be a classroom. We want this to be something that the Lord will use in our lives that we can take away and that we can be equipped and trained and, and better witnesses for the Lord. We can follow the example of the Corinthians in the good news part of the story. After the Lord used Paul to get them back on track, the Corinthians' way of following Christ was conspicuous. It was obvious for everyone to see. 
Everybody knew that the Corinthian Christians took their discipleship of Christ seriously. Now, we don't know how long they followed Christ before those weeds of division popped up again, but we know for a time that they did. But we can use their example to help us in our followership of Christ. Let me give us two action points to make our discipleship as Christians conspicuous, something that everybody can see. And the first one is internally, internally. In other words, we need to make a clean break with evil. Have you ever done that, to make a clean break with evil? A way to do that, practically speaking, is to write a Dear John letter, no offense, John, Dear John letter to the devil. (laughs) Dear John letter to the devil. Now, it's not as crazy as it sounds. You might think, yeah, it is as crazy as it sounds. But how many of us came to Christ by repenting of our sin and believing the gospel? I think just about all of us have who know Christ, right? We know this. It is the way that we've all come to understand the way of salvation. As Scripture tells us, Christ is the Lord. He died for us on the cross for our sin in our place. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where He is now interceding for the saints according to the will of God. He will come back one day to set up His kingdom and He will judge the living and the dead. That's the Jesus that we are called to follow. One day He will set the kingdom up. We've got to be ready for this. But how many of us, in doing this, in our discipleship of Jesus, following the Lord, how many of us have actually told the enemy to formally take a hike? Ever thought about it? Now, we know the enemy's real. We know that principalities and powers exist that God told us that we are to wrestle against. But how many of us have said, in essence, I slam the door on the enemy's face to, as it were, make a clean break from the enemy. Remember in in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, so we might want to turn there real quick. Ephesians 2, chapter 1 to 3, tells us who we all were at one point. Every one of us was in this condition. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Now, just summarize this. He tells us that at one time we were all dead in trespasses and sins, all of us. We were separated from God. All of us followed the course of this world. All of us followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and we were all by nature children of wrath. That is who we were. We were closely associated with with Satan himself. And one person calls it, we were bosom buddies with this guy. We don't like to hear this, but that's true. That's where we were. But since we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, the enemy no longer has authority over us. Did you know that? He no longer has authority. The most he can do is to try to get our attention, to divert our attention away from the king. And so, since we were all so close to and with him in the past, why not write a Dear John letter to the devil? It's been said, along with uh, people like Martin Luther and I I think C.S. Lewis, that Satan hates to be mocked, hates to be belittled, and he hates it 
when people remind him of his destiny. So why don't we do that from time to time? Isn't that great? Now, musical prophet Keith Green actually wrote such a letter, and he put that letter to music. And maybe you heard this song. It's called Dear John Letter to the Devil, really. And it's, it's, it's very peppy, and you know how I do. I don't sing, but I'm going to read these lyrics, and I hope I can do this justice because Keith Green is going to talk here about the, the sarcasm and how it just puts the devil in his place, so to speak. Here's what he says. Oh, I used to love you, but now that's hard to do because I've got some information about the evil things at night that you do. And the whole thing is through. We're through. Oh, you're such a devil. How did you get me to believe you were true? Ooh. Oh, my mama warned me and how my daddy cried the day I left my home. You said you'd always keep me satisfied. But oh, how you lied. You lied. Well, I should have heard my mama's words, but then I guess I had too much pride. Original sin. Oh, I used to lie awake at night and see your face on the ceiling. What a bad feeling I have when I think of how you almost got me in the ways of the world. The ways of the world. My so-called friend said, I misjudged you. My anger's all in vain, but I'm afraid that you got to them before I had a chance to explain. And it caused me such pain. Ouch. Because they were such good friends of mine, but now you've got them playing your game, you creep. Well, I believe in Jesus. (laughs) I love this. And what he said he's going to do, he's going to put an apple in your lion mouth and cook you in a sulfur stew. One that will never be through. Is it soup yet? No. But if he hasn't rescued me, then I'd be down there cooking too. Oh, if Jesus hadn't rescued me, then I'd be cooking right next to you. Ugh. I used to lie awake at night and see your face on the ceiling. And what a great feeling I have now when I think of how you're going to get yours at the end of the world. Dear John Letter to the devil, Allison. Did you okay? All right. What a mocking tone, Keith Green. Praise God. And God's people can say these kinds of things. We can. Why? Because 1 John 4, 4 says, we are from God and we have overcome them. Who are them? Them? Literally the evil spirits in the unseen realm. For it is he who is in us that's greater than he who is in the world. We've got the authority to do that and to say that. And so if you sat down to write your dear John letter to the devil, what would you say? We could tell him to take a flying leap into the lake of fire, couldn't we? But also we can commit concerning ourselves to tell him and our flesh no. With emphasis, every time we're faced with temptation to deviate from God's ways. That's one way of making our discipleship with Jesus conspicuous on the inside. But let's not forget the outside. We need to let other people see this as well. Now, this includes fellow Christians, those who don't care about the things of God, and those who even hate God. In a word, we need to eradicate the weeds in our field. Eradicate. Not just kind of manage it. We need to eradicate it. Remove every trace of them. You know, like one of those weed removers, you know, you kind of stick in the ground and then pull out the root. 
You know what I'm talking about? That's the kind of thing we need to do. Root and all. Now, when I say this, I want you to hear me well. I'm not talking about, you know, sinless perfection, okay? We're never going to get this way on the, this side of eternity. We will then be perfect then because God's going to glorify us, take away our sinful nature. But we can, by the power of the Spirit, eradicate some sinful acts in this side. We can eradicate them. Do you believe that? For example, be transparent here. In my BC days, I used to shoplift a lot. And I was good at it. I almost got caught once. And the temptation and everything got so strong, I could hardly even walk into a store without stealing something. That's who I was when I was a kid. But since the day I came to Christ, I can tell you that I have never again shoplifted, ever. Now, I had to make restitution, and there's a lot I had to make restitution with. And, you know, when, when Kate and I were first married, that's when the Lord began to deal with me about this. And our oldest boy was in tow. He's almost 40, <laughs> so it was a long time ago. Didn't have a whole lot of money. But I can say this, that my sin of shoplifting is eradicated. I've never done it since. Now, have I been tempted to shoplift since I became a Christian? Uh-huh. Absolutely. Now, can't you just do it one time? Just see if you can see if you still got the knack. No, I'm not going to do that. But that's who I was. And the temptation was there. And it still was there. But now it's not there. Doesn't mean that it won't happen at some point in the future. Probably tomorrow, I would imagine, because I'm talking about it. But by his spirit, but by his spirit, I've never yielded since. Not once. And so in your life as a follower of Jesus, what weeds, what individual sins can you claim complete victory over? You knew that you can, right? Again, we won't be able to claim complete victory over every sin. But is there a sin, one or more, that you can say by the power of God you have victory over? That every time you get tempted and it rears its ugly head, the temptation does, that you put it down every single time? That you no longer yield to it? It's not a pride thing. It's a real thing. Remember who lives within us, those of us who are in, in Bible fellowship this morning. Who lives within us? Holy Spirit lives within us. It's His job to make sure that we're becoming like Christ. And in large measure, it's eradicating those sins in our lives, eradicating them. Remember the Corinthians. They did well for a time, but then they let the weeds of division lay just below the surface, and they didn't deal with the roots. It didn't take much, by the way, of bad actors and circumstances for it to pop up again. As far as we can tell, the latter state of that church was then worse than the first. But we don't have to be like the Corinthians in that way. We can take care of the weeds in our lives. And so as we close this, I guess, afternoon now, I want us to read out loud two lists together on the screen, if you can. You can see it. Two lists and then a verse sandwiched in between. Okay? Read with me. One list has what Paul calls the deeds of the flesh. And the other one is the fruit of the Spirit. And as we read them together out loud, make it your prayer 
for the Lord to show you what weeds you have, may have been growing or may be growing in the yard in your lawn and lawn of your heart. Then ask him to do what it takes for him to be pleased to eradicate that weed, one or more of them. Obviously, this first list is not exhaustive. There are other lists, and maybe the Holy Spirit's going to show you something else. And if he does, guess what? You can do the same thing. Lord, help me. May you be pleased to work with me to eradicate this weed in my life. And then that verse we're going to recite together is First John 1, 9. It's a great thing. You know what that verse is, right? That God will forgive as we confess and repent. And then finally, we ask him to replace those weeds with the fruit. Now, we're not talking about the fruits never in us. Fruit of the Spirit will come out. And as we make room, as it were, by having those weeds eradicated, we can see more fruit in our lives. That's how it works. And so, you with me? Okay, let, let's read together. The works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? Next slide, please. Let's recite together. Wonderful works. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And finally, next slide, the beautiful stuff. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Amen. Amen. Good. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you that your building program, building your church, is not static. It's dynamic. It's a thing of life. 